Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm a slightly frazzled Catherine Roback. <laughs> and this week in our continuing quarantine here in 2020, we are discussing, I'm happy to say, a pretty delightful Poirot short story. Catherine, what really are we discussing? Delightful. We broached this once before, but we're doing The Labors of Hercules. This week, we are going to talk a little bit about that as a whole. And then we're also going to talk about The Nemean Lion, which is the first story in the collection. Yes, we did cover already the capture of Cerberus in our Countess Rosikoff-themed episode, but we have not Mm. covered any of the remaining 11 labors. So we have the lion share... Of them to come. Oh, oh, no. Boy. No, that's a terrible. You've been dad punning one too many times, Kemper. <laughs> Catherine, could you tell us a little bit about the publication history of the Nemean Lion and the labors of Hercules as a whole? Yeah, it was first published in November 1939, but again, it's the first story in the labors of Hercules, which was published first by Dodd Mead in the US and then by Collins Crime in the UK. In 1947. Yes, and we should mention the magazine that published the story in the UK in 1939 was our old friend, The Strand, and that it was also serialized in the US a little later in 1944 in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine under the title, The Case of the Kidnapped Pekingese. The whole setup to this, right, is about the mythology behind Hercules, or might I say, Hercule. Whether or not that's relevant to these stories, we're going to talk about a little bit, but hey... I like it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, similar to what Chrissy did with previous collections of short stories, each of these short stories was published individually in some sort of a periodical before being collected in 1947 as a book that has 12 chapters. Plus, actually, and this is the only episode in which we will talk about this, a foreword. There was a foreword that was included only for the book collection, which kind of explains explains how this whole labors of Hercules thing came about because it's very meta. Christie doesn't just put them all together and expect the reader to think to herself like, oh, haha, I get it. The labors of Hercules and his name is Hercules. She actually gives us a couple of pages, which are just as delightful as the stories themselves, in which Poirot is speaking with a Dr. Burton, who we've never seen before and we're even told in this short foreword, we will never see again. (laughs) He is, he is not important, but he is the one who plants the seed in our dear Papa Poirot's mind about the labors of Hercules. Essentially, Dr. Burton is asking Poirot what, you know, first his name is first about his name. And he's like, why Hercule? And it's funny because Poirot says, you mean my Christian name? And Dr. Burton responds, hardly a Christian name, definitely pagan. And then let's get excited, people, because Dr. Burton references the big four indirectly when he says, if I remember rightly, though my memory isn't what it was, you had a brother called Achille, did you not? And Chrissy continues, Poirot's mind raced back over the details of Achille Poirot's career. Had all that really happened? 
which is pretty much how I feel whenever I try to recall the incidents of the big four. So that's fair. And then he goes on this whole tangent about other people who he knows who have inappropriate names. And it's really obnoxious. He's, mm-hmm. he's talking about his godchildren. One of them is Blanche, quote, dark as a gypsy. Then there's Ooh. Deirdre yeah. of the Sorrows, turned out Mary as a Grig. As for young patient, she might as well have been named impatience and be done with it. And then this is by far the worst one because he goes on and on about essentially how fat someone who is named Diana has turned out to be and how originally her parents wanted to call her Helen. And I'm quoting here, but I did put my foot down there knowing what her father and mother looked like. Yep. (laughs) I find it a little bit unbelievable that Hercule did not know about his name. So it feels like real disingenuous. I didn't get that he was completely unaware of the mythological character of Hercules from this forward, just that he was completely unfamiliar. He's never read the classics. He wasn't schooled in the classics, which Dr. Burton is, and he starts <laughs> quoting Greek at him, too. But, yeah, he, he he quotes Homer, I think. But like, yes. but the thing the thing about it is that we know... That Poro is actually very, very literate. Yes, he is. But he loves the English poets, right? Like yeah, he, he loves lo- Wordsworth and Tennyson. He knows his Shakespeare. But I guess, you know, he's not much of a classics person. I mean, he definitely isn't because they discuss that very thing. And Dr. Burton says that that's what he should do in his retirement, Poirot, because he's looking forward to his retirement in this foreword written in 1947. And it's like, dream big, Agatha. <laughs> you've, yeah. You've still got you, you, several decades to go. Oh, man, <laughs> another 20 years with Poirot. She, I guess, is trying. She was she was making know. a go at it. And Dr. Burton is saying that he should study the classics with all the time he'll have to himself. But Poirot, in a lovely shout out to the murder of Roger Ackroyd, where we already saw him trying out his retirement, says, oh, no, no. Oh, he's going to devote himself to the cultivation of vegetable marrows. Oh, for sure. He like really loves that idea. It's repeated in the Nemean Lion a number of times about the deliciousness of vegetables. And yeah. There's an allusion to Sherlock Holmes on the same page that the vegetable marrows get mentioned because Dr. Burton is also amusing himself by thinking of uh, an imaginary conversation. I'm quoting again here. Your mother and the late Mrs. Holmes sitting sewing little garments or knitting. Achille, Hercule, Sherlock, Mycroft. We've talked about this so many times from Mysterious Affair at Styles onward. She loved her Sherlock Holmes. He is a direct mm-hmm. inspiration. And she she gets the kind of comedy in the Holmesian flair that exists right. sometimes within the world of Poirot. And Vegetable Marrows, I think, is her way of riffing on Sherlock Holmes's beekeeping. Because it's just funny and it's silly. No, no, it definitely is. I mean, before we get into this um, story, let's also preface a little bit. What is your familiarity with uh, Greek mythology, Kemper? Well, I have to say, Greek mythology and Agatha Christie were probably my two favorite literary pursuits when I was about 11 years old. And I'm not I bet saying you were super popular. I was super, super popular. It's, it's just funny to me that with the labors of Hercules, these two passions of mine are at long last united because for many years, I could not get enough of Greek myths. And there is one book more than any other that I just absolutely adore. 
adored to the point where the original edition that I read as a child, mm-hmm. I did not grow up in Los Angeles, but I brought this with me from my childhood home, this book, so that it could sit in a place of prominence on top of one of my shelves. That would be Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths. I, I would imagine many listeners are familiar with it. Just a gorgeous, uh, gorgeously illustrated book of Greek mythology that is told simplistically, but not. it's not Baudelaireized. You still get a lot of the Sturm und Drang of the Greek myths, but it, they're told in a, in a simple enough way that a 10 or 11 or 12 year old will be able to easily get through. I have to say that I guess I vaguely knew them, but I think I must have been in college, probably. I don't even think I read them in high school when I read, well, I read the Odyssey in... In high school, high probably, school. right? Yeah. 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 No, but I, mean, I, think, I think I read the Iliad and the Aeneid in college. We all probably, or many of us eventually slogged our way at some point in high school or college through... The Odyssey and the Iliad and the Aeneid and perhaps even more than that. Maybe some listeners out there were actually classics majors. I mean, you were a compliment major. That's getting closer <laughs> than I did yeah, as, a, well, as a plain old English yeah, major. No, no. Get, getting a lot closer. And it was, that was my great shame that I didn't speak Latin. Right. Yeah, I mean, I never took it that far. It was really much more about the stories. I mean, that's the thing, too. Robert Barnard, who I think we've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, um, has some wonderful writings about Christie. And I think one of the most perceptive things that he said about the way Christie writes is that she's not really writing stories. She's writing something that's so fundamental, it's almost on the level of mythology. And that that goes to the heart of why her stories are as popular and as widely popular in particular. As, as they are. And I think it's just something about the storytelling in Greek mythology that always really appealed to right. me, especially I mean, like, when I was just learning about story, you know? Right. I mean, I think that one of the things, right, about Homer is that it's actually not written, right? It's an oral recounting. You just mm-hmm. keep telling yourself stories. Yeah, it it really is about the stories, not the... Mm -hmm. It's not about sentence structure, right? It's not about prose style. It's about the elements of what happened. Yeah, of course, of course, and about like how they're foundational. So we do tell ourselves that repeatedly, and I think that in Christie, one of the interesting things that you see, maybe more in Miss Marple, actually, than you see it in Poirot, is that you see what she does repeatedly, which is she tells... A story about St. Mary Mead. Mm-hmm. And that then gives you the information that you need to know in order to solve another mystery. She uses stories to make sense of the world as she's experiencing it. Yeah, which is what I think we all do. I mean, it's a famous Joan Didion line. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Mm-hmm. I think you say weirdly more in Miss Marple than you do it in Poirot. But we obviously saw it heavily in Five Little Pigs, my favorite book. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. Thinking about Christie as a mythologist, it's reductive, but it's more just for the purposes of making a point because as as always with Christie, there are a lot of different ways to look at Christie and there's so much of Christie that we can we could make all sorts of different arguments about what Christie is or what she's doing. But just for the sake of this point, looking at her as a kind of mythologist, it puts the whole cardboard characters thing into Mm. the right perspective because myths are based on types 
right? Types of Correct. People. No, but I would also say, and I think it's underappreciated, is guess what Christy's background was? Christy went to Egypt as a girl. Christy traveled the world in her first marriage, and then she married an archaeologist. <laughs> an extremely erudite archaeologist. Correct. And so I feel like if you look at what actually her background is, of course that makes sense. No, 100%. I agree. And I think in true Christie-ish fashion, she takes something that she understands forwards and backwards, and rather than doing the stuffy highfalutin version of it, she just has a whole lot of fun with it. And that's what she's doing with the labors of Hercules here. It's just, it's really, really fun. So I thought it would also be enjoyable to do a little story time from Mm. my beloved Dollar's Book of Greek Myths, which by the way, when I was a kid, I always pronounced as Dollaries, but I only just recently realized that cannot be the way that it's pronounced. And by recently, I kind of mean today because I realized (laughs) I was going to have to say the name of the book aloud. And I was like wait a second, that cannot be how that's pronounced. <laughs> because it's it's written by a French couple whose last name is Dolaire. So it clearly has to be Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths. I digress. Wait, 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 wait. Can I share one other fun fact? Please. Do you know when I was, um, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with both the book and the movie The English Patient? Um, but one of the things that the count in the English patient carries around with him is he has this old weathered edition of Herodotus of the histories. And that is something that I did look into because I thought that, you know, he was such a romantic figure, right? Mm -hmm. So like I then thought Herodotus When I was like 11 years old, I thought Herodotus was romantic. (laughs) That's kind of like your gloss on on Marianne Dashwood with Shakespearean sonnets. Oh. But very, a very Catherine gloss on that. (laughs) (laughs) The Herodotus via the English patient. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So according to the Dolaires, here is the rather simplified introduction to their section on the labors of Hercules, which I think will just give us a little bit of context for these stories. And as I said, this book is a delight. It also has just these huge illustrations that take up either one page or sometimes both pages, almost centerfold-like, which are just really great fun to look at. And I'll try to post the one for Hercules battling the Nemean lion. I'll try to post it on our social media for people to look at. So here's a section on Heracles, which is his Greek name. Proudly did the muses sing of Heracles, often called Hercules, the strongest man who ever lived on earth and the greatest of all the descendants of Edenos. His mother was Princess Alcmena, granddaughter of Perseus and Andromeda, and famed for her beauty and virtue. His father was Zeus, so Hera, of course, hated Alcmena and pursued Heracles with her wrath. When he was an infant, the goddess sent two spotted serpents into his cradle, but little Heracles simply grasped them in his powerful hands and squeezed the life out of them. He grew stronger every day, but his trouble was that he did not know his own strength. Being of noble birth, he had to learn to sing and play the lyre, but Hercules would much rather wrestle and fight. One day, his music teacher, Linus, scolded him for singing out of tune. 
In a fit of fury, Heracles banged his lyre over the teacher's head harder than he had meant, and the blow killed the poor man. Heracles was too strong to have around a palace, so he was sent into the mountains as a shepherd. There he could use his tremendous strength on prowling beasts. Soon he had rid the countryside around Thebes of lions and wolves, and the fame of his strength spread far and wide. He came back from the mountains as a, as a hero, and the king of Thebes regarded him so highly that he gave him his daughter in marriage. Hera did not like this at all, and she made Heracles insane. Raving mad, he swatted down his own children, mistaking them for wild beasts. When he regained his senses, he was horrified at what he had done, and went to the Oracle of Delphi to learn what he must do to atone for his crime. He was told that he must serve for ten years as the slave of his cousin, Eurystheus, and perform ten labors for him. Hera was pleased, for Eurystheus, the king of Mycenae, was a weak little man who hated his strong cousin Heracles. With her help, the king would surely think of the hardest tasks for Heracles to perform. For his first four labors, Eurystheus sent Heracles to rid the nearby countryside of dangerous beasts and monsters. And I'll just read the short blurb on the Nemean lion labor, which is the first labor. In the valley of Nemea dwelt a monstrous lion whose hide was so tough it could not be pierced by any weapons. It was one of Echidna's dreadful offspring which Zeus had let live as a challenge to future heroes. Heracles chased it out of its lair, seized it in his bare hands, and squeezed it to death. Then he skinned the beast with its own claws, and with the impenetrable skin of the Nemean lion slung over his head and shoulders, he reported back to Eurystheus, his first labor performed. So that is the story of how the labors of Hercules came about and the first labor that we're about to deal with. I also think it's worth noting what Poirot's own reaction to the labors of Hercules as written is, because Christie does record his reaction within that foreword. He's basically horrified by it, because after Dr. Burton leaves, he's like, hmm, maybe I should check out this whole Hercules thing. May there, you know, there might be something to the study of the classics. I won't read all of it, but here's a little bit of what she wrote. Take this Hercules, this hero, hero indeed. What was he but a large muscular creature of low intelligence and criminal tendencies? Poirot was reminded of one Adolphe Durand, a butcher who had been tried at Lyon in 1895, a creature of ox-like strength who had killed several children. The defense had been epilepsy, from which he undoubtedly suffered, though whether Grand Mal or Petit Mal had been an argument of several days' discussion. This ancient Hercules probably suffered from Grand Mal. No, Poirot shook his head, if that was the Greek's idea of a hero, then measured by modern standards, it certainly would not do. And he goes on from there. He does not want to compare himself to the classical Hercules, except in that they had both been, quote, instrumental in ridding the world of certain pests. And I would also, I within a lot of the labors of Hercules, and we even just saw it in the Nemean Lion, as recorded in that book of Greek myths, there's often a little trick to what Hercules does to complete the task because the Nemean lion was hard to slay because its skin was impenetrable. So you couldn't right. just stab it with a spear like you normally would a lion. So Hercules, what did he do? He squeezed the life out of it. That is not how one normally kills a lion. There's an analogy to be made there with how Poirot figures out clever solutions to the puzzles put in front of him. Oh, and he's incredibly manipulative in this story. Remarkably manipulative. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's probably now is a good time to transition to the Nemean lion. At the end of that foreword, it is kind of funny because Poirot is already gearing up because he's he said, OK, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take on 12 labors of Hercules. I'm going to find cases that somehow in some way correspond to the 12 labors and then I'll retire <laughs> again. <laughs> 1947. Christy's writing this. Nice try, Agatha. 
And he already knows that he can't be too literal about it. And Christie writes, it would be too much of a coincidence should he be approached by the directors of the zoological gardens to solve a problem for them involving a real lion. No, here symbolism must be involved. And he's imagining that the lion is going to be perhaps a lion in the public eye, some well-known writer or politician or painter or even royalty with a capital R. He liked the idea of royalty. I just note that because it's really funny when we turn the page and, and then you end up with a Pekingese. Yeah, and we and we get into our story proper. So, Catherine Brobeck, tell us a little bit about the victim of the Nemean lion. Well, that's an interesting question, Kemper. <laughs> <laughs> the actual victim, which we will get into later, is incredibly interesting, especially, I think, in Christie context. I think it's a really interesting what the actual victim is. But ostensibly here, the victim is Lady Hagen, the wife of Sir Joseph Hagen, and he is a terribly venal, self-important banker type. And his wife had a dog, Shantung, Pekingese, and he was kidnapped whilst in the park and she paid apparently a massive ransom 200 pounds which in 1939 is a lot of money i mean it's a lot of money now yeah and her husband's furious about it he's just furious about the amount of money that she spent on this stupid dog but she got him back all right that's our victim. In terms of suspects, there's really only one here, which should uh, clue us into the fact that this is a, an odd puzzle mystery, though it is a miniature puzzle mystery of sorts. Christy's doing something different here, but something wonderfully different. So mm-hmm. um, our right. one suspect is Miss Amy Carnaby, who is the helper, companion, person. We have seen this character so many times before. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a significant in the story, sometimes not. Uh, we shall yeah. see what happens here. <laughs> Miss Amy Carnaby is the companion to Lady Hagen, whose dog was stolen. And she was, in fact, responsible for Shantung, the Pekingese, when he was cut from his lead at the park and taken. There's also a Captain Curtis. We'll get into this a little bit later. But Poirot never really believes these people are suspects. Yeah, there's no viable second suspect. No. All right, let's talk a little bit about the world as it appears to be, Catherine. Miss Lemon Kemper. Yes. It's, I mean, it's uh, actually kind of rare to get Miss Lemon in print, you know? It's rare, and Poirot is so mean about her. And then he's all of a sudden like, oh, no, actually, Miss Lemon is brilliant. <laughs> you never doubt Miss Lemon. Never, ever doubt Miss Lemon. But she sees a letter sent to Poirot and she points it out for him to handle. And he's really irked because it seems incredibly dumb. It is in regards to this man, Sir Joseph Hagen, who is asking about his wife's dog. But Poirot sees exactly what Miss Lemon saw immediately, which is that there's something really odd about this letter. And he agrees to meet Sir Hagen. Right. The thing that we find out when he's speaking with Sir Hagen that makes it weird is is very simple. It's that Sir Hagen was the one asking for Poirot's help as to this dog that had been kidnapped, mm-hmm. not Lady Hagen, whose dog it actually was. And, that, and in fact, they have the dog back. 
it would be just a run-of-the-mill, quote-unquote, hysterical woman who has a lapdog and is upset at its kidnapping. You know, we imagine that Poirot gets dozens of those a month. Right. But this one's coming from the husband, and that's what Miss Lemon zeroed in on. And as we said, Miss Lemon is always right, because there is definitely something weird going on here. First of all, Sir Hagen is just terrible. That's not necessarily oh, that no. weird, but... <laughs> no, but a, but a total monster. Yes, Sir Hagen is a garbage person. Let's not put too fine a point on it. He's the worst. Terrible. <laughs> just terrible. And then he gets worse as the story goes on, too. Yeah. I mean, he makes Raymond West look like Mother Teresa. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, man, Kemper. Those be some strong words. I hope that listeners realize that our quote-unquote hatred of, of Raymond West is, at least mine, is 70% joking. I'm like 60% joking. Okay, fair. I might actually be 60 also. <laughs> yeah. But I'm a little, yeah. I'm more joking than serious, but not that much more. He really helps um, Jane live. For that, we can appreciate him. He supports his Aunt Jane financially. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, that is significant. That's only going to get more significant, actually, as the Miss Marple novels continue. So, anywho, that was a tangent. Yeah, Sir Hagen is terrible. He's mainly angry that his wife paid this 200-pound ransom for a dog that he can't stand, and she didn't tell him about it until after the fact. This is all basically in the past, but Poirot was then told what happened. And here is what happened. The dog was being walked around London in one of London's many beautiful green parks. Which we miss. Yes, we do. Lady Hoggins' companion. She was taking Shantung on a walk for her employer. And Miss Carnaby was distracted by a pram and the adorable curly-haired baby that was inside of it. And while she was cooing over said baby, the dog was apparently cut off his leash and disappeared. And she ran around frantically asking anyone at the park if they had seen anything. No one had seen anything. It's a London park. There's just dogs everywhere. So have you seen a man with a dog? Uh, Yeah, I've seen like 30 men with dogs like in the last 10 minutes. So um, it was very easy to affect this kidnapping in such a place. And the next day, Lady Hagen received a ransom letter. And the letter requested that she send 200 pounds in one pound notes, which... Mm -hmm. Oof, sounds very inconvenient to me. <laughs> my my childhood best friend, who we've casually mentioned on this podcast before, she doesn't listen to it, so she'll never hear it. Um, but I did a FaceTime camper today with her little girl. Who sounds about right. Six. Yep. Yep. I, I did it at lunch, and she told me what she had done for Easter, and she held up this bag of money. <laughs> and it turned out that they had tried to do an Easter egg hunt in their backyard and also try to do quarantine schooling. So in order to help the kids count, they had just figured out dollar bills and quarters in all the Easter eggs. So you mean they exchanged Easter eggs for dollars and quarters? No, 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 no. In the, in the hollow Easter eggs. Oh, in the plastic Easter egg in that the they plastic Easter for, eggs. They had stuffed dollar bills and quarters. Yeah, and then they had to make them count them as part of their stay-at-home schooling. <laughs> well, apparently the bag of cash that Lady Hagen had to drop off for Shantung looked a lot like your friend's daughter's uh, Easter I think. bag. Yeah. 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 And if Lady Hagen did not comply with this request, then Shantung's 
ears and tail, mm-hmm. I believe. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Then Shantung's ears and tail would be cut off, which I have to say reminded me of the Oracle at Delphi. Not the first time I uttered that phrase on this episode, since Hercules also went to the actual Oracle at Delphi. But um, right. in Christie's Parker Pine short story, The Oracle at Delphi, that also involved a kidnapping and a ransom letter and a threat of cutting off ears if the request was not complied with. Although in that case, those were human ears. <laughs> so that was a little worse. This, this is a puppy. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, don't get me wrong. I'm an animal lover. It's still terrible. So Lady Hagen, there's no way that she wasn't complying with, with this request. And she knew that her husband would forbid her to pay anything because he's super cheap and again, a garbage person. So she just went ahead and did it and overdrew at the bank. <laughs> Correct. And so Poro, he has heard all of this from the husband himself, right? And so he's like, you know what? Can I come over to your house? By the way, here's a good life lesson. Never let Poirot come over to your house. <laughs> but he ends up interviewing a very tearful Lady Hagen as well as Miss Amy Carnaby. And he clearly has disdain for Lady Hagen, who is also unpleasant. Let's put it that way. Here's the thing. When they're first introduced, I know Christy so well now. Lady Hagen is first described as having, quote, dyed henna red hair. Uh That means she's a baddie, right? In in Christy, you do not have dyed red hair and and you cannot be a good person. The fun fact about this story is that if you've read enough of these or if you've been listening, listening to this podcast enough, you know what happened in this story like instantaneously. Yeah. And then I actually laughed aloud at the way that Christy described Miss Carnaby right after that. Here's what she wrote. Her companion, the fluttering Miss Carnaby, was a plump, amiable-looking creature between 40 and 50. She treated Lady Hagen with great deference and was clearly frightened to death of her. <laughs> right. It's like she's yeah, clearly so, like like a hostage. <laughs> right. So where do we think this is going exactly? But yeah, and then, you know, he he interviews both of them and gets exactly the same same facts that we already stated. And then he tracks down Miss Carnaby's letters of recommendation because apparently Poirot also realizes that he's in a Christie story. <laughs> so he immediately is like, oh, I should look into Miss Carnaby. Yeah. And she'd previously worked as a companion to the deceased Lady Harding Field who was also an owner of Pekingese. And in fact, one of the gifts she'd given to Miss Carnaby was a Pekingese. But she'd come with glowing recommendations. She's like really competent and well-liked. A little simple, possibly, is what is implied. But she's kind to the people that she works for. And she takes really good care of the dogs. Hmm, Someone who seems simple, hence is perhaps being disregarded by those around her. I've never seen a character like that go on to be anyone significant in a Christie story. (laughs) Did we also mention that she apparently has a sister who was very ill, who Miss Carnaby took care of, but then the sister died? Mm. That doesn't sound... That's never a suspicious backstory that might not be totally true in a Christie either. <laughs> I know. It's all the best hits. And also, we should mention right here, the tone is really snarky. 
Oh, yeah. Even down to the names of the Pekingese dogs, because spoiler, but we actually have three Pekingese dogs that we're dealing with in the story. And we meet two of them relatively quickly. One is Shantung and then another Nankipu. Ugh. Which is just ridiculous. I mean, these names are absurd. Shantung and Nankipu. Yeah, so we find out all this backstory of Miss Carnaby. And then Poirot also tracks down the supposed ransom letter that had directed Lady Hagen to send the money to a specific address. So Poirot quite reasonably goes to that address, which is 38 Bloomsbury Square Road. And it turns out to be a rather dodgy hotel where mail is often sent and the proprietress there uh, just does not really keep track of what's coming or going. So it's a good place to go if you needed to nip in and grab a letter that was unaccounted for because perhaps you were sending it to a person who never existed, say. Because the ransom note that Lady Hagen answered, you know, directed that she send the 200 pounds and one pound notes to this address in Bloomsbury Square Road to a Captain Curtis, which is why technically, I suppose, Captain Curtis could be a second suspect. But Poirot just never seems to even believe that Captain Curtis exists. And we're never given a reason to believe Captain Curtis exists. No. So for all intents and purposes, he's not a suspect no, because he doesn't exist. Right. And we, and we will get a second example of this a little bit later from... Mrs. Samuelson? Yes, and Mrs. Samuelson is the second quote-unquote victim, right, whose dog, Nanki Poo, was also kidnapped in exactly the same way, except that she paid 300 pounds in ransom instead of 200 pounds. Clearly, there is some sort of serial kidnapping going on here. Um, and- I'm sorry, Kemper, dog-napping? <laughs> yes, dog-napping. I guess suppose that's the technical term for it. Perhaps this is all seeming a bit obvious. I mean, it's particularly particularly obvious when summarizing as we do, because we literally haven't talked about anyone else who it could possibly be other than Miss Amy Carnaby. But Poirot asks his valet, Georges, to do a little digging. He has some requests for Georges. Poirot gets the information he needs, and then he goes and pays a little visit somewhere, doesn't he, Catherine? Yeah, and I think that we should now branch into the world as it actually is, because are there really clues here? It's delightful, Um, but the actual clues here are limited. I would say clue number one is, hey, middle-aged ladies, and also never underestimate the help, not ever, because boy, Cumber, is that what this story is about? Spoiler alert on after the funeral for a Mm -hmm. sec. So fast forward if you haven't yet listened to that episode or read that book, but we saw it in after the funeral. If you are an aged woman in Christie and a member of the help in some way, chances are you are being overlooked and that could make you very, very dangerous, couldn't it? Well, I don't even think dangerous here. I mean, it's don't overlook people is the right. lesson. Yeah. No, I mean, the lesson is don't overlook anyone. It's just that these are two classes of people that in Christie, those people often do get overlooked. So uh, it is possible for those people to do things that more visible people may not be able to do. So for just from the get-go, we should be we should very suspicious of Amy Carnaby. 
And we have one other fun little clue here. That would be doubling. It is, I believe, one of the fundamental rules of golden age detective fiction that twins are off limits. You're never supposed to use twins in the solution of a puzzle mystery because twins are cheap. But you know what? Christy loved playing fast and loose with the rules, even though she did have respect for them. She would often figure out ingenious ways to get around them. And right. we don't have twins here, but we just may have doubles because we do have multiple dogs in the story. And if we already have two, why not have a third? There may be one novel to reference here, which is a favorite of mine, perhaps a nemesis of Catherine's. Might be my nemesis. Not the book nemesis, mind you. Yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. So we're about to spoil something from a previous book, if anyone would like to fast forward a little bit. But what would that book be, uh, which deals in doubling so centrally, Catherine? Oh, I was just going to make a joke that the Pekingese are my nemesis from uh, Lord Edward Dies. Jane Wilkinson. Jane Wilkinson in dog form. Now there's a nightmare. (laughs) I mean, I might prefer Augustus. But yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, having another dog in the mix might be a way to pull a fast one here. Ye old switcheroo. And were we told that there may be another dog in the mix somewhere? Oh, yes, that's right. Miss Amy Carnaby inherited a Pekingese. So... Let's just uh, head right into our resolution here. Miss Carnaby did it, obviously. Surprise of all surprises. She is the perpetrator here. Here's what she does, though, because it's pretty great. <laughs> it's fa- Well, no, this is like one of the most fascinating Christie solutions. And not that it's not obvious, but the r- reason is fascinating. Yeah, there are TV shows and movies built around this scenario. It brings to mind Good Girls on NBC, and also Widows, a little bit. This is a trope that is well-worn, obviously, but, like, Christy handles it delightfully here. So, what is Miss Carnaby up to, Catherine? She's ransoming horrible rich women who treat their employees like garbage, and she's part of this conspiracy to then redistribute the money from the ransoms and help to support them in their retirement because they weren't paid well enough to retire. She's essentially like giving them a 401k. Yeah. It's like a pension, health and welfare sort of Mm -hmm. system. Yeah. Because these women are not only treated like trash in their, their role as companion servants, but they're also paid like trash. So they leave those posts and then don't have the ability to support themselves and end up spending their latter years in penury until death, just being miserable. So Miss Amy Carnaby has taken matters into her own hands and said, no, 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 that will not fly with me. I am going to take a little bit of money from these people, the couple hundred pounds that she is purloining from each woman, each household is not going to break that household, let us say, but it is certainly going to mean a heck of a lot to the women who she's trying to help here, including herself. (laughs) And her sister who turns out not to be dead. Who turns out not to be dead. That's interesting that that little backstory was a little more complicated than as originally told. She's straight up Robin Hooding. She's Robin Hooding with the assistance of her Pekingese dog, whose name is Augustus, which is a fantastic name. (laughs) for a little Pekingese dog. So what she's doing is targeting the rich female owners of Pekingese dogs who also have poorly paid companions. And the scheme works as follows. 
The poorly paid companion brings the dog to the flat where Amy Carnaby's sister, who is not dead, lives with Amy's own Pekingese dog, Augustus, who is also not dead. And then the companion goes out on a walk in the park with Augustus, engaging with a baby in a pram or some other sort of subterfuge while secretly cutting the dog leash themselves. Then Augustus, who is very smart and well-trained, runs immediately back to the Carnaby flat, and the companion is left to raise a hullabaloo about a lost dog, showing the cut leash, etc., etc., thereby preserving a perfect sequence of events for a dog napping with lots of witnesses. From there, the ransom note is sent, along with threats that will never be carried out, and the payments are sent to fake military men at boarding houses, like the one that Poirot visited, where Amy Carnaby can go and collect them. Ta-da! By the way, Shantung is the 16th dog that has been abducted and ransomed in this way. Uh, It's perhaps worth noting that Poirot is lucky to have been called in on the one case where Amy Carnaby was involved, not just as the mastermind slash ringleader of this criminal enterprise, but also as the companion who enacted the switcheroo at the park, unlike the previous 15 cases where it was some other random poorly paid companion, meaning that Poirot never would have met the mastermind Miss Carnaby. It's a little awkward in terms of the construction of the mystery here, but that's a quibble. And Miss Carnaby is the one who also makes the overt connection to lions, because apparently there is a myth that Pekingese dogs were originally lions, that they're descended from lions. Because I have to admit, from the beginning of the story, I had written in the margins when I realized it was going to be about a Pekingese dog. I was like, why not a cat? Because... Cats are closer to lions since they're both felines, obviously, but for the very good reason that you don't take cats out on walks. So that's why. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? Here's the kicker, Kemper. It's a little bit the surprise of this whole story. What does Poirot do? Well, it's a surprise and it's not, right? Because this is kind of hearkening back to the early days of Poirot when Chrissy was writing so many of those short stories because we saw his extrajudicial side take full form in the short stories, especially because sometimes those short stories would just end abruptly with him being like, and I'm not going to do anything about that because I don't want to. Or he would just have his kind of own ideas. And we've obviously seen him do this in the novels as well. And we really get that side again of Poirot in this story, because not only does he not turn Miss Carnaby in, he takes it further than that, doesn't he, Catherine? He basically pulls like a double cross. Turns out that Sir Hagen is having an affair with his, guess what, peroxide blonde secretary, Georges and Poirot have figured this out. And he... Maybe hints a little bit about it to Hagen. Well, it goes even further than that because... It's about murder. It's a murder It's about murder. I mean, that's what's so great about this short story. This is not a murder mystery, obviously. No, but there's a a murder plot in it. Poirot manages to foil a murder plot in like the last paragraph um, as an afterthought to the rest of of this delightfully off the beaten path story because Poirot is still Poirot. He's not going to fail to get the money back for his client. And his client here is Sir Hagen and Lady Hagen, right? So he says, okay, Miss Carnaby, he's not going to do a single thing about any of the other people that she fleeced because those are not his clients but you have to give me back the 200 pounds and she does so she gives him the 200 pounds with no fanfare and she says well uh, you know basically like i had a good run i guess it's all over now 
And Poirot goes back to Sir Hagen and he says, you have a choice. I could tell you who did this and you could absolutely prosecute, but there's a really good chance that you're not going to get your money back because it's hard to prove. It's the legal system. It's by no means a sure thing. Or I can write you a check for that $200 that you lost right now because I was able to get the money back for you, but you cannot ask any questions. And true to form, Sir Hagen goes for the latter because he just wants the money. Because he's a venal criminal. Yes, he's much worse than cheap because then Poirot also mentions... It's really interesting that uh, your wife had mentioned to her companion that something she drank tasted off recently. <laughs> the, the tonic. Yeah, the tonic. The tonic that she had, tasted off. That she had been drinking. And uh, Papa Poirot is always aware of romantic entanglements that may be happening under his nose. And um, he's no fool. And he knows that Sir Hagen is carrying on an affair with the secretary. And the entire story, in a very Miss Marpleish way, actually, going back to your point, it, Catherine, he has, about... He, right, he has another... He references early in the story another case. Sir Hagen reminds him of this other person who was a husband who murdered his wife. <laughs> so Poirot tells him this right out, actually, in their, in their final scene together. He says, Curiously enough, you recall to me one of my earlier cases in Belgium many years ago. The chief protagonist was very like you in appearance. He was a wealthy soap manufacturer. He poisoned his wife in order to be free to marry his secretary. Yes, the resemblance is very remarkable. And then Christie writes, a faint sound came from Sir Joseph's lips. They had gone a queer blue color. All the ruddy hue had faded from his cheeks. His eyes starting out of his head stared at Poirot. He slipped down a little in his chair. No one writes over-exaggerated reactions of disbelief or surprise like Christie. It's not passive-aggressive. It is aggressive, what Poirot does. But at the same time, he's not saying it directly. Oh, yeah. No, he never actually accuses him. And even as he as he leaves, he says, I think I need hardly point out, Sir Joseph, that in your position, you would do well to be exceedingly careful. And then right after that, in a new section, we have Lady Hagen saying to her husband, funny, this tonic tastes quite different. It hasn't got that bitter taste anymore. I wonder why. So he and, was totally and and, and, and And you know what? Poirot also gets uh, take backsies with the money. Yeah, because uh, Sir Hagen then is so scared of Poirot that he says, you know what, um, you you can keep that 200 pounds yourself. That Let's consider that your fee, because now he just wants to keep Poirot happy. And Poirot is like, okay. And then we get a final little piece of the story here, which is just quite heartwarming, because what does Poirot do note. with that 200 pounds? He gives it to Miss Carnaby. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and that is a little surprising. It's, dare I say, Parker Pine-esque. That, yeah, it 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 really right? is. But like there's something just like it's you know, we've been doing this podcast for a long time now and like you would think that you wouldn't be that surprised. And it's not that anything about this is actually that surprising. Obviously, we were joking the entire time that like clearly Miss Carnaby did it. But the end result of it is fascinating to me. I don't recall the last time that I was this surprised by the ending of something. I guess it's been a long time since we've done a classic short story for Poirot. But this is just like wonderful. 
I think it's been a while since we've done a, yeah, a Poirot short story because he, he's definitely a little more not buttoned up, but I think anchored to the legal system and justice as most people experience it in the novels, even if he occasionally you know, <laughs> departs. But here he's just, I mean, oh. it would be bad enough that he lets Amy Carnaby and her sister just walk free, which he already does. Like, that's not that surprising because they no, are. He, so well, I mean, also he does it literally all the time. So and he does it all the time. No, it's true. He does it either by allowing people to walk free or commit suicide or whatever. Right. <laughs> but like, yeah, but here, I just love his note too. Dear Miss Carnaby, allow me to enclose a contribution to your very deserving fund before it is finally <laughs> wound up. Yours very truly, Hercule Poirot. It's just like he's contributing to a criminal enterprise. So truly odd. We talk all the time about how offended she is by taxes, right? Yes. And then you get these weird moments that are like Robin Hood socialism. And that's what's great about Christy because we want to pigeonhole her and say that she always it's also she believes I mean, one thing, but there's a smorgasbord, right, to choose from. Correct. No, I love this. I did not see this coming. You know that I'm a gasser. A lot of listeners get annoyed, I think, that I'm a gasser. But this I did not anticipate. No, I didn't either. I was really surprised by it. And it really caps off the story and, to me, took it to the next level where I finished the story and I was like, oh, this is one of my favorite short stories that I've read of hers. Like I, fi- I, 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 I love find it. this story to be purely delightful. Yeah. I'll also say this, and this too makes it a classic Christie story, because there was w- one moment that also made me cringe when Amy Carnaby is talking about how she pulled off her scheme. And she's saying, you see, to most people, one Pekingese is very much like another. And then she has a parenthetical. Oh, I'm cringing. Just as we think the Chinese are. Oh, Christie. Terrible terrible but you know what that's part of the Christie experience that we have this brilliant story with this fascinating perspective on like social justice and someone like Poirot buying into it and in that way like really getting us on the side of these companions and getting a little bit of their own and then we have that sentence sprinkled in so we're like wow you know just like a very Christie's experience overall and it's also just like punchy that's the word that I wanted to use before it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. punchy it's yeah. like there are like all these little weird asides in it and they're really funny yeah it's actually kind of a long short story but mm-hmm. um it reads incredibly fast we'll talk about this when we get to the end of the labors of hercules collection this is one of the few corners of the poirot verse where the Suchet series really fails because they chose not to adapt these stories individually. They did a single Labors of Hercules adaptation in their final season. And we talked about it briefly on our Countess Rosikoff-themed episode since we had touched on the capture of Cerberus. We will, I think, deal with that adaptation more squarely in our final episode having to do with the labors of Hercules. We'll watch it again and, and I think talk about it because they took bits and pieces from each of these stories and then also did a lot of their own invention and created what, to my mind, felt like a Frankenstein's monster of right. the labors oh, no. of Hercules. I, mean, I, I, I would say the other part problem of it is that these are delightful. That's my point. It's criminal that this story 
specifically, and we haven't really covered the rest of them yet, but this story specifically within seasons one, two, or three of the Suchet series would have been perfection. Well, there's heavy Miss Lemon in it, right? At the beginning. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't even have to make that up. Hastings can easily be dropped in there. Could you imagine David Suchet getting to the end of this and his sympathy with Miss Carnaby and oh, just the jaw? No, it would have it been oh. so good. It's actually like, yeah, I completely agree with you that it is one of the great flaws because it's just like, why would you put this in one of the dour late season episodes and like split it up? Yeah. Like a Frankenstein's monster. They should have just done a season of the labors of Hercules and done 12 50 minute adaptations of these stories. And oh I my believe- God. We also, we would have gotten more of Raskov, which would have been wonderful. Which would have been great. I mean, we do get her in that Frankenstein's monster episode, yeah, but it's, it's bizarre. And I believe uh, John Curran, when we had him on, mentioned that this is his favorite short story collection of Christie's overall. And based off of this story, I can see why. I mean, I think there's, there's an effervescence to these stories and that sense of mischievous fun that Christy was having doing the labors of Hercules. So like (laughs) these were not stories to be glossed over. And, and, you know, I mean, I think the Suchet series, they had done so many and I think they realized like, oh crap, we've got to, we've got to deal with these 12 stories somehow, but they compressing them like that and not really doing them justice was not the right move. I love the Suchet series so much. So fundamentally, but I agree that I don't understand why they didn't split these up and do them. And that was also the episode where we covered a while ago the Le Miserier inheritance. Mm-hmm. And they also threw that into that episode right. by literally just having a character with the last name Le Miserier. They didn't do anything with that short story either. And that short story too, I remember we were saying could have easily fit in the series. It makes me sad that we don't have proper adaptations of those, especially because that series was so devoted to doing justice to and they, and they every single story. Such but a good job most of the time. But yeah, here... It's just like you really you really wish that they would have done this in like 1988. Yeah. Oh, and that's the thing. I would want it to be done in the spirit of the early episodes, not the right. later ones, because that's the spirit in which they were written. Even though, ironically, these are written later. I know. Well, the individual stories are written... 1939, yeah. so still it's getting into the sort of like less like spunky, pithy era and into a darker phase, I think. But most of what they adapted late in the Suchet series is the heavy novels, and they're just much darker. Yeah, we're still within certainly the first half, right, of the of, and I think you can feel that. And I and it's interesting to me, given the way that the foreword frames the collection, to me it actually, I think, is a good marker of punctuating early and late Poirot. She clearly, like, really wanted him to retire. Obviously, he wasn't going to because she, she just couldn't. He was too popular. She was going to keep on writing Poirots. But I think if she had her way, he would have retired after The Labors of Hercules. And we she harps on it a lot in these later Poirot novels, how he's old now and he's retired and people don't know about him. And there's a slightly embittered tone 
in the text, which is taken a lot farther, as we've discussed in the Suchet series, but it almost feels like this collection might be a good kind of milestone marking those two different periods. Not exactly, but it's in and around that time period, especially given the fact that they were written individually much earlier than they were collected. I like that way of marking his career in terms of when this collection came out in 47, because it really does change after that. These almost feel like the last of the truly spry, lighthearted Poirots. There are some that I wouldn't call them lighthearted or necessarily spry, but they're certainly not as densely serious as some of the recent ones that we've seen. No, it's true. And he always has his moments of being spry, even in novels that might feature him being older and more embittered. Um, It's never that simple, but I don't think I ever paid attention before doing this podcast to where the labors of Hercules hits within the career of Poirot. And it's interesting that it, it feels like a midpoint, you know, it does feel like a bit of a midpoint. And it was especially interesting to me that the foreword frames this in the context of, oh, well, I'm going to do these 12 cases and then I'm going to retire because it kind of brings home the idea that after this, he's a little bit on borrowed time. And you do feel that in a lot of those books and it tinges it with a sadness or just kind of like a wistfulness or a nostalgia even that the earlier books or stories don't have. Certainly in the 30s, that glut of 30s is nothing like what we're getting in the 50s. I mean, I will say, because I've probably said it a million times before, I mean, I think the flip over is probably Five Little Pigs. You see what the switch is. He's doing something different, and that would have been... That's in 42, I think, So it's like two and a half years or something after she wrote this story. Yeah, and then the collection's coming out five years after that. It's all kind of... It's it's, it's a middle period. It's it's mid-Poirot. My dear Poirot. clearly are big fans of the Nemean Lion and the Labors of Hercules in general. I'm actually really excited that we have mm-hmm. 10 more of these to I go. Know. We're going to be doing two per episode as a rule uh, moving forward, so that's uh, something to look forward to. But uh, before we do our next two Labors of Hercules, we actually have a novel coming up, Catherine, don't we? Yeah, we have a pocket full of rye. I bet you're excited about that, Kemper. I am very excited for this Miss Marple novel. The Miss Marples mm. are coming fast and heavy now in this later career. I mean, that is our compensation for Saturday sparser Poirot, we get a whole lot more marble. All right. Well, that is our next episode. Very excited for that. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you as we always do. First off, you can check us out on our Patreon site. We recently posted an episode about Anthony Horowitz's Magpie Murders. I imagine that is a novel that many listeners enjoyed. So we were able to geek out over that. That is over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. We are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. And Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. And as always, we so appreciate the ratings and reviews. A bunch of them have come in recently, and we would love to get more of them. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.